you have a Bible with you, can I invite you to open up to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we're continuing our verse-by-verse study through the, the book of Acts written by Luke, and uh, we're having a good time as we're wrapping up the ending of chapter 2 after hearing Peter's incredible sermon. So this morning, we're in verses 42 through verse 47, and I've entitled the message as 10 Marks of a Healthy Fellowship. So some of you might be familiar with Mark Dever's work called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, a great book that he put out a couple of decades ago. But uh, the title of this sermon is Ten Marks. I found one that he missed. Uh, just kidding. I don't, I, I, these, these marks are actually different altogether than what his are. But these are ten marks that we're going to get from Acts 2, 42 through 47. Ten marks of a healthy church, or I'm calling it a healthy fellowship. Acts chapter 2, Luke writes, starting in verse 42, as we're wrapping up the end of Peter's sermon. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts." praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful this morning to be able to read here the very ending of chapter two, an incredible chapter, the day of Pentecost, recording for us what you did when you started the church and how you sent your Holy Spirit to dwell in the hearts of men and to give incredible gifts of speaking in tongues and power to evangelize and to understand the gospel and to proclaim it throughout Jerusalem and we'll see in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So I pray that this morning as we see how that incredible sermon that Peter preached impacted those listeners there in Jerusalem and marked them as a healthy fellowship. I pray that we could see some of these observations that that changed these people, that we would be changed today that we would desire to grow today and to be the church that you've called us to be without shame and that we are not looking to emulate ourselves after any other community except the community of Christ. And so I pray you would be exalted in our time together this morning as we look at this passage and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Do you like fellowship? Do you even know what it really means to fellowship? The word itself sounds a little churchy. It's almost like saying, have you surrendered to Christ? Or are you storing up treasure in heaven? Or you need to build your house on the rock and not on the sand. And sometimes these are just phrases and things that we say and we don't always really think about what they really mean. Or maybe if you didn't grow up in the church, when you hear the word fellowship, you don't really know what to think of. Your mind might even wonder towards that popular film, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. That might be where your mind goes. Uh, When I was in medical school training to be a physician's assistant, I remember asking many of the doctors who I was working alongside in the hospital what area of medicine they were going into, and they would oftentimes say something like, well, I'm going into surgery, and then after that, I'm going to do a fellowship in orthopedics. In our culture... You can also use the word fellowship to refer to the rule for dividing profit and loss among partners in a business relationship. Fellowship can refer to the state or relation of being an associate or a foundation for the maintenance on certain conditions of a scholar called a fellow who usually resides within a university. Growing up in church, I heard the word fellowship a lot, and it was often used to refer to some type of an event, like, hey, youth, tonight we're having a fellowship after church over at the youth pastor's house. We even had a room in our church building growing up that was designated as the fellowship hall. 
Anybody grow up in a church like that? Where fellowship was just a common word that we used and threw out all the time. And I'm afraid that some Christians don't really know what that word means. What is fellowship and how are we to use that term? Well, Webster's Dictionary defines fellowship as a community of interest, activity, feeling, or experience. Also defined as to join in fellowship, especially as a church member or to admit to a fellowship as a church. Well, that's Webster. We appreciate the definition there that's given. But what we really want to do as Christians is to dig deeper into the Bible to rightly understand what the word fellowship really means in God's word. I think most of you know, probably if you've been at church for a while, that the Greek word for the word fellowship is koinonia. You've heard the word koinonia before. That's the original language, the Greek language for the word fellowship. And the word literally means to have something in common. The term koinonia signifies a mutual participation in a common cause or a shared life. In fact, it could be translated as a partnership or as a participation in. The word fellowship is used 19 times in the New Testament. And this morning here in Acts 2.42, it's the only time that we see this word koinonia or fellowship used in the book of Acts. In the context of the New Testament and here in Acts 2, we obviously are talking about Christian fellowship. And before you enter into Christian fellowship, you have to enter into Christ and Christ has to enter into you. Embracing Christ is a prerequisite for entering into Christian fellowship and thus being a part of the Christian community. So if the base definition of the word fellowship is to share something in common, the question would be, well, what is that something that we share in common? And I'm here to tell you this morning that that something is not a something, but it's a someone. We share Christ together in commonality. We commune with Christ. We fellowship because we are found in Christ and he is found in us. And fellowship in the Bible is more than being just part of a common community. It's being part of Christ's community. And this is exactly what is going on here in the early church at Pentecost. One commentator said it this way, quote, the Christian community is not some passing association of people who share common sympathies for a common cause. Nor is it an, an academy where all the intellectual consensus about God is discovered. It cannot be so superficial. Christian community is partnership in experience. It is the common living of people who have a shared experience in Jesus Christ. They talk about this experience and they urge each other to grow more deeply in it. And they discover that through it, they began to build life together, unlike any shared life in the world. Close quote. I love that extended definition. It's sharing Christ together in a way that we're participating and partnering together in our relationship with Christ. And I would love for us as a church here at Plasterita Bible Church to grow in our understanding and practice of fellowship. And in order to do that, this morning, we're going to look at 10 marks of a healthy fellowship or 10 marks of a healthy church. You ready? Number one would be this. We're going to see it here in verse 42, but it's simply devotion to the doctrine of the apostles. In order to really have a healthy fellowship, we need to be devoted to the doctrine of the apostles. And we get that from verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. So Peter had just preached a glorious sermon. He, he preached the first expository sermon by a Christian follower post-resurrection. And he started off his sermon by explaining the gifts of the Holy Spirit from Joel chapter 2. 
and explained the outpouring of the Holy Spirit from that passage. And then he preached the gospel from Psalm 16, saying that David's body is still with us to this day, but Jesus Christ will be raised from the dead and his body will know no decay. And then he preached to us from Psalm 110 and said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies your footstool. And as Peter finished his sermon, the Bible says from our passage last week that people were cut to the heart and Peter called them to repent. They they were cut, convicted, said, what must we do? And Peter said to repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because of the forgiveness of your sins. And he told them that the promise of salvation was for the Jews and for the Gentiles. It was for those who were near and for those who were far off. It was for the called. It was for the chosen. And all of God's people were to be saved from a crooked and a perverse generation. And on that very day, the Bible tells us that the Lord added to their number about 3,000 souls. And so the question is, what did these new believers do after they repented and they were baptized? So it's kind of like part of the mission's accomplished, There was repentance, there was baptism, there was adding to the church 3,000 souls. And now the question is, well, now what do we do? Now that we've been saved, what do we do next? Did they come in the front door and exit out of the back door? No, certainly not. Did they just spring up in their growth and then wilt in the heat? No, I don't believe so. Did they profess Christ with their mouths and deny him with their lifestyle? That's not what we see here in Acts. So what did they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. And you see there in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That word teaching is the word didache, didache, which means doctrine. Maybe you've heard the word didastic. If you're a scholar of any university, you've heard about didactic teaching, teaching or instruction in the classroom. And so we understand in the original language, this word didache or teaching instruction also means doctrine to provide instruction either in a formal or in an informal setting. And they devoted themselves to this kind of teaching. In fact, the NASB translates this verse by saying they were continually devoting themselves. This was not a one-time event. This was not, not a blowout Pentecost sermon and then life back to normal. This was a blowout Pentecost sermon and then sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon as the apostles continued to preach and exposit the word of God. This was an ongoing habit And they showed their genuine faith, not only by being baptized, but by hungering for the word of God. You know, a lot of times churches will have a big Easter service where they'll have a baptism baptism service and and, uh, hundreds of people will get baptized. And then they'll open up that service to a lot more people to come get baptized. And I think there's some different thoughts about the, the, uh, the philosophy of that. But one thing we know for sure, when these people got baptized, they were there to stay. They didn't just kind of come into one service and then go back to normal life. They were devoting themselves continually day in and day out to the word of God. They hungered and thirst for good, solid, biblical teaching. It was Jesus who said in John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So not everybody who just comes on the big revival Sunday is necessarily going to be a true disciple. But Jesus said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Jesus said that the true branch will abide in the vine, John 15. The good seed will not wither and die under persecution. If the person comes and then they vacate the church, 1 John 2.19 says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not part of us. In other words, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into heaven. Not everybody who says they're a Christian is a true Christian. Not everybody goes to a Christian school or a Christian university or was baptized as an infant is somehow automatically a Christian. We understand here that you're a Christian if you love Christ, obey Christ, 
And the example that these Christians are giving is they were devoted to the teaching of God's word. And they're there at Pentecost. They did not leave the flock. They did not abandon the fold. They did not abandon the premises, but they continued devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And today, many in the church come to hear the music, and they come for a fun, a family-friendly experience, and they come to have a good time and to be told what they want to hear. But true believers who are healthy in their love for Christ are hungry for the Word of God. And the truth is, nothing else will satisfy For your maturing Christian who's growing in their faith, if they go to one of these churches where it's a lot of pop and a lot of fluff, then they leave there and say, you know, I can't go back there because I need somebody to feed me some meat. I got to go somewhere where the Bible's being open and it's being explained and taught to me because I'm past the frills and I'm past the introduction into Christianity. I need to hear God's word. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, and here is what we hear the author of Hebrews write about this. Hebrews 5, 11 says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. The writer of Hebrews is getting on to his audience a little bit, and he's saying, look, I'm having to teach you over and over again the same fundamental principles. I mean, in some ways, that's good. We never get tired of the gospel. We never get tired of the same fundamental principles. But in this context, it's a little bit of a rebuke. And he's saying to them, guys, you should be moving past that. Look at verse 13. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And so that's what he's saying. He's challenging people. Look, you got to move past the milk. The milk is always there. The milk is always good, but you also need some meat. And you got to move past the milk into the meat because you need to be mature. You can't stay in your diapers and somehow have respect of maturity in your, in your own heart and in your mind and in your Christian life. You need to be trained by constant practice so that you can distinguish true Bible teaching from heresy. So that you can distinguish what the Bible says from what just people say because it seems to be popular. And so from that passage there in Hebrews 5, we could ask ourselves the question, have you become dull in your hearing? Do you need to have someone teach you again the basic principles of God's word? Are you trying to live on milk and remaining, therefore, unskilled in the word of righteousness? Or are you ready to have your powers of discernment trained by constant practice so that you can distinguish good from evil? The truth is, in our world today, a lot of churches water down their doctrine. They dilute their doctrinal statements. They diversify their position theologically on just about everything and on every major doctrine so as not to offend anyone. I remember being a part of a Bible study once when I was working as a PA before I went to seminary where people that were in this community Bible study that I was a part of said that it doesn't matter if you're a Roman Catholic or a Protestant, it's all the same as long as you love Jesus. The people in this Bible study said it doesn't matter if you repent and bear fruit or not as long as you love Jesus. The people in this Bible study said it doesn't matter if you're a heterosexual or a homosexual, as long as you just love Jesus. And my friends, that's the kind of nonsense that's going on in a lot of churches around the world today because they're scared to stand for something that's true because doctrine does divide, and rightly so, if it's dividing between truth and error. If it's divided between truth and error, I say bring it on. And we understand we're not here to necessarily be polemical and beat up on every other genuine denomination. 
But there's a difference in another genuine gospel-believing denomination and the kinds of things that are entering into churches today. And my friends, loving Jesus means that we listen to his word from the Bible and we follow it with all of our hearts. And one of the best ways to learn about what Jesus said is by listening to good expository biblical preaching so that you can rightly divide the word of truth for yourselves. And Paul's letters to Timothy demonstrate the urgency and priority of preaching and teaching. Remember, I've been telling you over the last few weeks, a lot of people are trying to do away with preaching, water it down, let's have conversations, let's just have a conversation on a stool, let's not have somebody get up there and give proclamation because that's kind of against our culture today, but that's just not what the Bible says. Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. 1 Timothy 4.11, command and teach these things. 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close eye on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And of course, we've been looking at 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having their having uh, itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions. Well, we're just told from the Bible and we need to be reminded this morning how we need people who are hungry again for the word of God. We need people who are hungry for the spirit-filled, truth-saturated, unadulterated word of God. And that's what this church did. The church of Jerusalem continually devoted themselves to the didache, to the teaching, the instruction of biblical doctrine. Well, not only did this early church in Jerusalem devote themselves to solid teaching, but they devoted themselves, number two, to Christian fellowship as well. So 10 marks. Number one, devote yourself to biblical teaching. Number two, devote yourself to Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship. And of course, we see that there in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Now, if we are not careful... You, we could start to think, after everything I just said about preaching, that it's all about the Word, and it's all and only about the Word, and people just need to come to church to hear the preacher. And maybe you've met somebody like that, and they said, I don't care about the song service. I don't care about the announcements. I don't care about all the other programs. I'm just here for the Word. And whenever I hear somebody say that, part of me is kind of excited. I'm like, well, they, well that's awesome. They, they're hungry for the Word, and they just want to get the Bible, and they sound really mature. But actually, that's really immature. It's really immature to say, I'm only here for the word because you're also here for other people. You're here to have fellowship with one another. We are living stones being built together to build up the church of God. And if you're only here for the word of God, then you're missing the second greatest commandment. The first greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Maybe you kind of tie that to preaching the Bible. And I would say that's great. But the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And how can you love your neighbor as yourself if you're not willing to commune, to fellowship, to participate in our common relationship with Christ by practicing the one another's. And so we see just as soon as the author here, Luke, writes they're devoted to preaching or teaching, they're devoted to fellowship. They're devoted to God and they're devoted to each other. That's what the Bible's all about. And if loving God is what you're into, then you've got to love your neighbor. That's just part of the package. Part of the package of being a Christian is it's not just about you and God. I mean, when you go to a nice restaurant, you don't only go for the food, but you go for the ambiance. Right? When you're thinking about a really nice restaurant, you just don't do the takeout thing even though we've kind of gotten accustomed to that during COVID, right? But typically when you go to a nice restaurant, no, we're going there, we want to sit down. Did you guys know you can sit inside a restaurant now? 
It's a pretty cool experience. I did it for the first time a couple of weeks ago in a year. I went inside a restaurant. It's pretty awesome. So, but part of what, that's part of the, the purpose of going out to eat. It's not just about give me the food and I'm out of here. It's like I want to enjoy this evening together. When you go to a Dodger game, did you guys know you're going to be able to go back to those this summer too? <laughs> I'm so excited. Uh, when you go to a Dodger game, you don't just go for the game. You also go for the crowd. And you go for the Dodger dogs. And you go for the garlic fries. Where's my garlic fries brother? Right there. There he is. Uh, and you go for the nachos and cheese. And you go for whatever. you got to have the ballpark experience. In other words, it's not just about the game. It's about everything that's happening around the game. Ladies, when you go shopping at the mall, you don't shop like a man. You know how a man shops. You go right in, you get what you want, and you go right out. But that's not how girls shop. And my 14-year-old, who just turned 15, happy birthday, sweetie, uh, reminded me just this week, Dad, when you go shopping, we got to walk around the store. And we have to look at all the items and just take our time. And I'm like, sweetie, that's not how the Tysons shop. We go in, we get it. And we get out of there. And she's like, no, 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 we're changing the way we shop, all right? We got to find out all about everything. And I'm just saying, when we talk about the word of God, and when we talk about the fellowship of God's people, you can't get so centered on the word of God that you forget about Christian fellowship, which is commanded, right? As I've already mentioned to you, the word fellowship, koinonia, in this context, it's sharing Christ together. Fellowship does not mean that you are all just eating out of the same guacamole bowl while you're watching the Super Bowl. It does not mean that you're having your favorite latte at Starbucks. It does not mean that you're hanging out at the beach together. What, fellowships mean, what fellowship means is that you are having a close association involving mutual interests. And your interests in this context is you're interested in Christ. You're interested in talking about what God's teaching you through his word. You're interested in being together. Sure, you can have guac and you can have chips and latte. But if you're not talking about Jesus, it's not fellowship. So don't call it that. What you should be doing is when you're together, you should be like, hey, tell me what God's teaching you. Tell me what verse of scripture you've been meditating on this week that's encouraged your heart. Let me share with you what I learned in the sermon that I was listening to this week or the podcast I listened to this week because God's doing something in me and I want to share that with you. That's what it's all about. It's sharing Christ in common. And that's something that we have in common should be hopefully a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. It means that we are partners in the kingdom of God, which means that our goal is to spur each other on toward love and good deeds. But before we can fellowship with each other, you have to be in fellowship with God. And that's why John says in 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And so when John says those things in 1 John 1, 3 and 4, he was proclaiming that Christ was real, that he had seen Christ and touched Christ and heard from Christ and that which he had personally experienced, he is now proclaiming so that they may have fellowship together. But in order for that to take place, he emphasizes that you must have fellowship with God the Father and then you have fellowship with God the Son. So in other words, you can't fellowship with other Christians if you're not a Christian. If you don't share Christ together, you first must be born again. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So if you are in fellowship with Christ then you are in fellowship with the Father. And if you are in fellowship with Christ and the Father, then you are in fellowship with your brothers and your sisters in Christ. We look down at, you're here in Acts 2, look down at verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Another idea of fellowship that we'll point out a little bit more here in a minute, but it's just the point here is that they, they were together. 
They spent time together. They shared all things in common. Here at PBC, we love to be together. That's why we hang out before and after the service here on the patio. That's why we have small groups. That's why we have different ministries so that we can be together. And when people just show up for the service and when they leave right after the service, that is not a good and healthy sign of a good and healthy church. I mean, if you want to know what a healthy church is, it's the church where people show up early and they're mingling it together. And after the service, they continue to mingle together because there's a maturity to the idea and understanding that we're here for God's glory and investing each other as we partner together in the life that we live. And when people linger, you know there's some healthy fellowship that could be going on. A third mark of a healthy fellowship is this. Number three, devotion to the breaking of bread. Devotion to the breaking of bread. There again in the middle of verse 42, they were devoted to the teaching, the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. We read a little bit more about that in the middle of verse 46. They were attending the temple together and the breaking of bread in their homes. Well, this first reference of breaking bread together in verse 42, I believe that it is a reference to the celebration of the Lord's table or what we commonly call communion. There are two ordinances which the Lord Jesus commanded that every believer should participate in. One is baptism by immersion, and the other is communion. And just as uh, baptism is not optional, but it's something to be obeyed, Christ commanded it, repent and be baptized is what he taught, and it's also what Peter taught in this sermon. And so he's also teaching here, you've got to be taking part in communion. And if you think about it, baptism is to be really, in so many ways, that first step in Christian obedience to demonstrate your newly found faith in Christ. Communion is to be an ongoing demonstration of your unity with Christ and your fellowship with him. And we're instructed more about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 29, where we read that Jesus had given thanks. He broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then he says this, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. What we learn in that passage of 1 Corinthians is that Christ sacrificed his body for us. Jesus shed his blood for us. And every time we take the bread and drink the cup, we remember the Lord's death and we remember his sacrifice, but we also look forward to his return. And not only does taking communion in the right way demonstrate a continued dependence upon and fellowship with Christ, but it is also something that we are able to do together as a part of our corporate worship. Part of our corporate worship is we participate in the Lord's table on the first Lord's day of the month. 1 Corinthians Chapter 10, verses 16 and 17 says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? So he's talking about taking communion, this cup of blessing. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Guess what the word is for participation? It's our word koinonia. Koinonia, remember, it's fellowship, participating, partnering together. So when we take of the Lord's cup, we are participating, we're fellowshipping in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation? Again, koinonia, fellowship. When we take part of the bread, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. And so the idea here is given of communion is not a singular event. Communion in the Bible is never a point where somebody's off by themselves reading their Bible, and it's like, I'm just going to take communion, just me and Jesus. You just don't see that in the Bible. It's somewhat common in some devotional cultures today, 
But I'm just saying the biblical example is it's a corporate act of worship. We are fellowshipping together. We are proclaiming the Lord's death and his resurrection and the fact that he's coming back together. It's always practiced in community. And so a healthy church is going to be regularly carrying out those two ordinances of baptism. And as we see here, the idea of breaking bread, I believe a reference to the Lord's table that they're, we're taking together. A fourth mark of a healthy fellowship is this. Number four, devotion to prayer. Devotion to prayer. At the very end of verse 42, they're devoting themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And throughout the book of Acts, we find examples of the church's vibrant prayer life. They knew that they needed to continually depend on the Lord in prayer. And without prayer, they knew that they had no power. In fact, we see this time and time again in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, we read, and when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That passage, Acts 4, 31 says, it was after the apostles had prayed. They were all together in one place, but it was after they gathered together and they prayed, that's when God shook the place. It was after they prayed that they saw God show up in the power of the Holy Spirit in a powerful way. And I would just say, if you want to see God shake up some things in your life, are you really devoting yourself to prayer? Acts 12, verse 5 through 7. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was found sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly and the chains fell off his hands. How did that all happen? Well, it says Peter's in prison, but what was the church doing? The church was in earnest prayer. They're earnestly praying, Acts 12, 5, and after they prayed, all of a sudden, God put on a jailbreak, right? And, and Peter escaped from the jail. Peter from the church, they were earnestly praying, the text says. This means they're praying constantly. They're praying fervently. They're praying eagerly. They're praying with an expectant heart. And I just wonder if we pray like that as a church. You know, sometimes we just fall in, into rote prayer, asking a blessing, a prayer right before bed, you know, a prayer when you're about to venture out on a long trip. And it's just kind of this quick little prayer. And I just wonder how you're doing, church, in your prayer life. Are you devoting yourself continuously, earnestly, eagerly, expecting God to do something awesome in your life for his glory? Are you praying like that? I mean, I've been praying for revival in our church. I've been praying for revival in my own personal walk with God. I hope that you would join me in that. Whereas you're praying throughout the week, God, would you do a special work of grace at PBC? God, we don't want just a new building. We want a brand new heart as a church to be more evangelistic and to be more loving and more devoted to your word. God, we want to see you saving souls. We want to see the baptistry full every time we do baptism. God, we want to see your work through this church reach the world. That's why we're praying for families that we're sending out around the country, right? Or around the world, the Stolarskis that we prayed for this morning. That's why we pray for the Smiths, TJ and Karen, as we send them to Dubai. That's why we're praying for Mark Rituna and his family as they go back to Uganda. We want to be a church that's praying for God to do an incredible work through us. And we need to be praying for God to continue to raise up men and women and to send them out to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 9, 38, Jesus said, therefore pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. A fifth mark of a healthy church is this. Number five, devotion to awe, A-W-E, devotion to awe, gladness, and praise. And we see that here in verse 43, and then a little bit in 46 and 47. But 43 says, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The word there, awe, A-W-E, is the word phobos where it's the word fear. You think of a phobia, you have a fear. The word literally means fear, or in this context, it's holy fear. 
It's the idea of reverence for God. It's the idea and the feeling that you get when you realize that God is there in your midst. And the same word is used in Acts 5, 5 and Acts 5.11, describing the reaction to the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his life, his last, and great fear, phobos, or the word awe, great fear came upon all who heard of it. And then again, after Sapphira fell down dead and the young man came and carried her out and buried her beside her husband, the scripture says, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. We should be in awe We should be in holy fear of a holy God who judges and who blesses as he sees fit. We should be in awe of a holy God who blesses and he judges according to his word and according to his mercy. Verse 44 says, awe came upon every soul. Now, that was probably partly due to the fact that they had just seen the speaking in tongues, heard the speaking in tongues. They're seeing now, verse 44 says, many wonders and signs being done through the apostles. Please note that verse 44, the text does not say the apostles themselves were doing the wonders and signs, but this particular verse says that these wonders and signs were being done through them. It was God's work through the apostles. Hebrews chapter two, verse four says, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so we know that the wonders and the signs were to attract people's attention to spiritual truth. And that's what we see even in the response to a man named Aeneas who was healed in Acts chapter nine, verse 33 through 35. He was healed And after he was healed, he'd been paralyzed eight years. Peter came, prayed for him. Aeneas was healed. After he was healed, it says that all of the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. So we know that sometimes these miracles, these wonders were acts of God done through the apostles to gather and garner people's attention so that they would know that there's a God in heaven and that these apostles were preaching the truth. And this was all based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw that Aeneas was healed, they repented and they turned to Christ. And in addition to the awe that came upon every soul back here in Acts 2, we also see in verses 46, there was gladness. In verse 47, there was praising God. And I believe that this holy reverence of awe that we see in verse 43 expanded in verse 46 as this kind of gladness. This holy reverence gave the early church a gladness like no other. This word gladness in verse 46 means a piercing explanation, like a song. I used to sing as a kid, for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice, for he has made me glad. You guys remember that song? It's like they just can't stop thinking about the gladness of God that God's given to them because of what they're seeing at Pentecost. And then we also see them praising God in verse 47. Reminds me of uh, praise means to speak the excellence of a person, or in this case, to speak the excellencies of God. We don't just speak about God's excellencies. We sing about God's excellencies. We sing the mighty power of God that spread, uh, that, that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. We sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines at his command and all the stars obey. And so they're, they're sitting there, they're praising God. They're, they're in awe of him and they're re, 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 in reverence and respect and worshiping and singing. And it's good for us to come together as a church and to be in awe of a holy God. It, it's good for us to come together as a church and to have glad and thankful hearts. And it's good for us as a church to come together and to praise him with all that we are. There's five marks, five more to go. A sixth mark of a healthy church is this. Number six, devotion to radical generosity. Devotion to radical generosity, verse 44 and 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
So now we see it's getting real for these people, right? These new believers in the early church experienced not only a spiritual unity, but a practical unity as well. Now, this does not mean, this does not mean that everyone literally sold everything. Neither does this indicate that the early church turned into a commune. Holding everything in common was not socialism or communism because it was voluntary. There was not a totalitarian dictatorship of the kind of communism that we see in our world today. This was simply radical generosity where individuals volunteered by their own goodwill and their own desire to help their neighbor out. Verse 45 says they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds as they had need. Again, they didn't sell everything. Some people sold some things as needs arose in order to meet those needs. A little bit later in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So we see this commonality of radical generosity continued throughout the book of Acts. And this church was like a family, one heart and one soul. And I think these believers held their possessions loosely and realized that whatever they had, they had received from God and were to use their resources to share with others. The fact that selling, the, the selling of their possessions was fully voluntary is also illustrated in, in uh, Acts chapter 5 when Peter's getting on to Ananias and he says, while it remained unsold, what did not um, when it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've lied not to man, but to God. So in other words, the reason that Ananias died wasn't because he didn't give everything. It's because he lied about it. And he said he gave everything when he only gave a portion to the church. And Peter's like, look, you had all this at your disposal. You didn't have to give it all. But since you said you did, you've lied not only to man, but you've lied to God, and he dropped dead. The point being, there was not a compulsion for everybody to have to sell everything and give to everybody, but there was this revival of refreshing generosity, like a fountain that was, that was motivating and encouraging everyone to give more, to share more, to distribute more. And Peter is, is encouraging that throughout his sermon. And we see that people are responding that way. There's, there's a similar kind of, of generosity seen in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13 through 14, where resources were offered to the poor in Jerusalem. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He's basically saying that the word fairness there indicates a certain equity, a certain balance. Sometimes you'll have extra and you can share that with someone else. And sometimes they'll have extra and they can share with you. And I really want to commend our church for its radical generosity. We recently have received the blessings of several families who've provided meals for us. That's what we try to do is small groups. We, we want to be a church that provides resources, food, a, a, a ride somewhere, a, a trip to the hospital, whatever. It's like we need to be a church to say, hey, I'm here to serve each other. It's not just about me. It's me doing what I can do to be generous. You know, as a pastor, I get to see a lot of that behind the scenes. Sometimes people walk, walk up to me and say, hey, here's $100. I want you to give this to somebody in our church who has a need. Somebody will walk up and, and make a big donation to our benevolence fund. And as an elder team, we have the joy and the privilege of discerning where we could use that money and help people out. It's a delight. It's a joy. And I just really want to commend our church for your generosity. It is so amazing to see how you give and you give and you give sacrificially and you give generally. And I just want to say thank you for being that kind of church. And at the same time, we can excel still more where each one of us realizes like, hey, I want to be like that. I may not give everything away. You don't have to, but I need to be giving more away than maybe I am giving because I want to be a part of that generosity that I see here in this early church. One commentator said on this passage, quote, 
a real Christian could not bear to have too much when others have too little, close quote. A seventh mark of a healthy fellowship is this. Number seven, devotion to corporate worship. Devotion to corporate worship. Verse 46, there at the beginning, it says, and day by day attending the temple together. So they were attending the temple together every single day here to begin with. No doubt these believers were not going to hear the scribes and the Pharisees, but they were drawing near to the apostles' teaching. And there at the temple, whether it would be up on the temple mount or the pavilion of Solomon, there was a lot of teaching that we've studied that Jesus was doing in that area. The apostles were continuing to do that kind of teaching there in that area. And, and the people would flock to that. They, they went there to pray. They went there to worship. They went there to bear witness to the resurrection of Christ. They had every right to use the temple since Jesus had claimed it as his father's house. And the hostility of the Jews and the leaders had not yet reached the point to where all Christians were immediately put out of the temple. Acts chapter three, verse one. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple for the hour of prayer on the ninth hour. Acts chapter five, verse 21. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Acts 5.42 says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease from teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And so we see this mindset of worshiping together corporately spreading throughout the book of Acts. Corporately means to, to be all together. And I mean, that's what Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir one another up towards love and good works, not neglecting meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So I would say, yes, you can worship on your own. Yes, there's incredible intimate times that you should be having with the Lord every day in your own personal devotion and prayer. But there's also something special and something extraordinary that happens in corporate worship. And we, we have never missed corporate worship like we have this past year, particularly exactly a year ago during COVID. I mean, some of the saddest Lord days where I would show up with the band and we're recording sermons in an empty MRH. I mean, I showed up a year ago. None of you guys were even there for Easter service. Where were you guys? You better be there next week, all right? We're doing it right here outside next week. But it was the weirdest thing in, that I've ever experienced in my life. It's like Easter Sunday morning and nobody's there. But that's why it's like we've experienced, you know, from COVID again, like, hey, you know what? I'm done with that. Forget that. <laughs> you know, like we're coming together in worship. It's what God commands. It's what we delight in. We worship God on our own individually, and we come to worship God together with everyone else, and just your presence here encourages one another's hearts. I mean, some of you sing wonderfully. Some of you don't sing so wonderfully, but your presence here still encourages us. Just your body being in the vicinity says, I care about Jesus and I care about you and I want to be together. I'm so glad that we can be back together, worshiping together. And I'm telling you something special happens when we are ministering to one another in the presence of God and participating in worship together. All right. An eighth mark of healthy fellowship is this, number eight, devotion to small groups. Devotion to small groups. Again, it says in verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food. Now, I'm saying that the first breaking of bread, I believe, in verse 42 is more of a reference to communion. The second breaking of bread here in verse 46, I believe, since it's taking place in their homes, might relate a little bit more towards just hospitality, sharing a meal together, having dinner with one another. Breaking bread here in this context means we're living life and sharing life by being over in one another's homes. And the early church was accustomed to getting together in each other's homes on a regular basis. They called some of these gatherings agape feasts or love feasts feast where they would come together. It's kind of like they just loved each other so much that they had to be together all the time. 
You know, it's a, like all your college friends over at the university. You probably missed the idea of the calf being closed because you couldn't go over to the cafeteria and sit at your table with all of your friends and just hang out and have that special time of fellowship together. When you love people, you want to be together. It's kind of like during the holidays when we all get together multiple times to share a meal together because we just love being together with family and friends. And that's what this early church was doing. They were together often. They were together regularly. And I would suggest, I don't think they were only eating together. I told you earlier, you can't just share the same guacamole bowl and call it Christian fellowship, right? I believe that as they were together, they were talking about what they were learning. They were having Bible studies and teaching and singing and praying and true fellowship together. We just read there in Acts 5.42 how it says that every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. And so there was both a formal worship in the temple and an informal worship in their own homes. You know, sometimes people will use this to say, well, we just have house church. We just do home church. And I think if you're planting a church, that's a possibility, but I just want to caution you, if everybody's only doing home church and house church, I believe they're missing out on the officers of the church, which would be an elder and a deacon providing a little bit more clarity and practicing the ordinances in a way that would have a little bit more authority than just a bunch of people getting together. I would prefer to call that a Bible study or a small group gathering. And I'm, and I'm saying that that might develop into a full-flown church, but I'm just saying, you know, we don't want the pendulum to swing so far that everybody's like, forget corporate worship. We're just doing our own things in our own houses. I like, no, it's a both and. We come together to worship, as I just talked about corporate worship, but we also enjoy the Bible study and the small group ministries that we participate in as a church. And I would just say, if you're not in a, a small group, I think that you're missing out. I think you're missing out on an aspect of hospitality and being together in each other's homes. And of course, here in the first century, since there weren't a lot of church buildings, you had the temple that I mentioned to you, but there was a lot more going on in homes. And that's why we read throughout Acts, even in 2020, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. In Romans chapter 16, verse 5, greet also the church in their house. 1 Corinthians 16, 19, the churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings as well. We read in Philemon, same thing, they meet together for church in a house. And so again, if you're here at PBC and you're not involved in a small group, let me encourage you to be a part of one. It will be a blessing to your soul. It will be an encouragement to your day daily walk. A ninth mark of a healthy fellowship is this, devotion to displaying an attractive faith. Devotion to displaying an attractive faith. There again in verse 47, they're praising God and it says they're having favor with all the people. And so they were praising God and having favor with all the people. The word for favor here is also another well-known Greek word, the word charis. It's where we get our word grace from. It's where we get uh, the, the word grace there comes from the word charis, which literally means a winning quality or attractiveness that invites a favorable reaction. And that's what the church is to be, right? When, the, when people see us loving each other and serving each other and devoting ourselves in this way, it has a special attractive charis, grace with that. Jesus says, in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another by this. All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So as we love one another, that's supposed to be creating some type of general favor, even in the culture. Now, as much as our culture is trying to stamp out Christianity, we need to know that our love and devotion for Jesus and for people still has an impact in all, on our culture. And they may, they may try to deny it. They may try to label us as haters. They may try to, to drown us out. But our love for God and our love for our fellow man does still have an impact. Some of you who are into basketball may have read this week about how Oral Roberts University made it into the March Madness Tournament. 64 teams in the NCAA all playing for it to be a national champion. ORU, Oral Roberts University in Oklahoma, 
known as a Christian university, has different views on different things, but as far as the gospel is concerned, a clear gospel, biblical gospel, um, Christian uh, university enters into this tournament. In the first round, they beat Ohio State. In the second round, they beat Florida. Unfortunately, they lost yesterday to Arkansas, so no true uh, Cinderella story, but here's my point. As they're gaining speed and moving into this tournament, there was an article written in USA Today that Oral Roberts University is a bigoted, out-of-date, homophobic, and filled with prejudice university. The article states, quote, as the spotlight grows on Oral Roberts and it reaps the goodwill, publicity, and revenue of a national title run, the university's deeply bigoted anti-LGBTQ plus policies can't and shouldn't be ignored. And the article goes on to state that because of the school's discriminatory and hateful anti-LGBTQ plus policy that fans should protest as the Golden Eagles advance in the tournament. The article pretty much says they shouldn't be allowed to even be in the NCAA tournament because they stand for biblical truth. And here's what the statement says, in case you're wondering, well, what does the ORU, Oral Roberts University Handbook, say? This is what it says, quote, students are expected to maintain the highest standards of integrity, honesty, modesty, and morality. Certain behaviors are expressly prohibited in scripture and therefore should be avoided by members of the university community. They include theft, lying, dishonesty, gossip, slander, backbiting, profanity, vulgarity, including crude language, sexual promiscuity, including adultery, and any homosexual behavior, premarital sex, drunkenness, immodesty of dress, and occult practices. Now, my friends, that is a good statement. That is very similar to the handbook of the master's university. That's very similar to our church covenant as a church, that we're dedicating ourselves as Christians out of our love for Christ and our love for neighbor to live in a wholesome, godly way. And what USA Today, that magazine article, newspaper article, is saying is they shouldn't even be allowed to be in the culture. They shouldn't be allowed to be in the tournament. And we might start to think, well, my goodness, everybody hates us. And I'm just saying there will always be haters. They're going to always be there. But you know what we're going to do? We're going to love them anyway. And we're going to keep living for Christ anyway. And we're not going to cave in. And we're not going to give in to the cultural norm of the world. But we're going to say, hey, we love Christ and we love you. But this is what we stand for. This is how we live. And we're going to trust that God will use our love and our prayer for our enemies to impact them in such a way that somehow, some way, as God graces it, that there would still be favor that would be shown to a church because they know that that church is for real. That church is for real and what they stand for and how they love one another. We need to be understanding that that's gonna get tougher and tougher, but it doesn't mean that we stop doing what we're doing. We do it all the more with the kindness and the grace that God gives us. And what an amazing description that we're seeing here in Acts of God's people. And our broken world needs to see compassion. And they need to, the watching world needs to see Christians that are demonstrating their God-given faith. And, and we live truly loving lives. And as we do that, I believe many will still be attracted to Christ. Now, one final mark of a healthy fellowship is this, number 10, devotion to daily evangelism, devotion to daily evangelism. The Lord added, very end of 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. How were people added to the number of believers? Ultimately, the Lord added them. He alone converts people, but the Lord uses us. And in Acts, we see the faithful evangelism of God's people. And I believe that the people were being transformed daily because believers were evangelizing on a daily basis. A healthy church 
will always have a burden for outsiders. They will boldly and compassionately proclaim the gospel to their friends and their neighbors and their co-workers. And the early church enthusiastically communicated the gospel within their own relationships and the Lord worked mightily through their steady witness. Acts 5:14 and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Acts eleven twenty four, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Acts sixteen five, churches were strengthened in the faith so that they increased in numbers daily. Again, what an incredible encouragement. This passage has to be to all of us that as a church, we can look at these 10 marks of a healthy fellowship and we can be blessed and encouraged in many of these areas. And in many of these areas, we could say, you know what? I need to grow in that area. Uh, That's something that I want our church to emulate that first church in Jerusalem. And so I need to be living in the power of the Holy Spirit every single day. And that's what I love about Pentecost. Not only do you have the speaking in tongues and the pouring out of the Spirit, not only do you have those incredible acts of God happening, but you just have people loving each other and you have people serving each other. You have people who are devoted to God and his word, and they're devoted to good, solid Christian fellowship. In his classic book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, quote, this is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brothers and sisters. And I believe that he wrote that maybe while he was even in jail for a couple of years because he missed the fellowship. There's nothing like life together. There's nothing like having Christian brothers and Christian sisters that we can share life together. And so let me ask you, are you living in fellowship with God? Because that's where it all starts. Doesn't just start with you saying you want to hang out as a groupie at church. It starts with, do you know God? Have you come to that point in your life when you have repented of your sins and you trust Christ as your savior, that you can have a right relationship with God. It's all by his grace. I'm calling you this morning that if you're not in fellowship with God, that that's the first thing you need to get right. You need to come and bow your knee before Christ, which means to surrender all that you are and everything that you have. And just to realize, you know what? I'm a wretch. I'm a sinner. I need God. I'm not in right relationship with him. God, would you save me? From my sin, I believe that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross and that you raised him from the dead so that I could be in right fellowship with you. If that's what you need to do this morning, after we sing this final song, we're going to have a few people up front here. We'd be happy to talk with you about that and to pray with you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're like, you know, I'm a Christian. I've been born again, but I just kind of feel like I'm out of fellowship. Sometimes we'll talk about it like that. I just feel like I'm a little bit out of fellowship with God, with the church. And you want to be restored in a way that would, would really impact your soul to be in a better relationship, fellowship with God and with others. We'd love to talk with you about that. We'd love to pray with you about that. It's our desire that we would truly be a healthy fellowship. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to continue to dive into Acts chapter two. So many amazing truths that we're reviewing, that we're reading some of us for the first time, that we're being reminded about as Christians, that we wanna have a healthy fellowship. God, we wanna be those who gather together. We're not just looking for a big crowd. We're not just looking for a great worship set. We're not just looking for good coffee. God, we're looking to commune with you through your son, Jesus Christ, We're hungry, God, to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We're hungry to devote ourselves to Christian fellowship. We're hungry, God, to be your witnesses in this world, that through our our worship of you and our praises to you, that we would be evangelizing and being an example to the world about what real life in Christ looks like. So we're continuing to pray, God, that you would empower us to live the Christian life in the power of the Spirit with great joy, And that as we sing this final song and as we reflect on what we've heard this morning around the table at lunch and throughout the day in small group for those of us who might be meeting, God, I just pray that you would be enriched in our hearts and that we would be changed forever and that we would continue to grow as our fellowship deeper in our love for you and in our walk with you. And that as we do that, that we would spread that love for you with others, being bold to maybe invite somebody to church this week 
special resurrection, Sunday Easter service next week. What a great opportunity for us to say, you know what? I'm going to invite my neighbors. I'm going to invite some friends, some family that don't usually come because I know this is a special day where they might be a little bit more inclined to come and to hear the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I pray, God, that you would be exalted in our hearts this week as we remember the passion of Christ, his sacrifice, his suffering, so that we could be saved and that we could be satisfied. Fill us with your presence, your spirit, your word. Allow us to walk in your truth with the joy of the Lord as our strength this week, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.